This is Michael Cox for the In Common Podcast. In this episode, I spoke with a colleague of mine, Gustavo Gordillo de Anda. It is hard to summarize Gustavo's career, but notably, he has worked for the Mexican government as its vice minister of agriculture. And in this capacity, he played a prominent role in the Mexican agrarian reforms of the early 1990s. He has also served as the Assistant Director General for the Food and Agriculture Organization, or FAO, in Rome. I met Gustavo when he came to the Ostrom workshop at Indiana University as a visiting scholar while I was there as a PhD student. We spent a fair amount of our conversation talking about the institution of the Mexican Ejido, which is a well-known example of community-based resource management that relies in part on common property ownership of fields and forests across the country. Gustavo describes the history of this institution and its changing relationship to the Mexican state, as well as his views on the 1990s Mexican agrarian reforms, which changed the Ajilo system. A big part of this reform allowed Ajilo members to sell their land to other members or with the permission of their communities to non-members. We also talked about secular changes that have occurred within the Ajilo system over time. These include the increasing empowerment of women in Ejido communities, as well as the increasing prominence of non-members in or near Ejido lands. We concluded our conversation by talking about Gustavo's current and future steps, which include finalizing a book on the 1990s agrarian reforms and Gustavo's thoughts about them, and a refocusing on literature, which has always been another passion of his. Here, Gustavo makes an interesting argument that there are some points and some truths that are best expressed by literature rather than by strict academic prose supported by the scientific method. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Gustavo Gordillo de Anda. But so, Gustavo, can we actually start our conversation with you talking more about what I call the origin story of our guests? How did you, can you talk to me about the path that led you from one experience to the next? Like when you make sense of kind of your career trajectory or maybe even like the multiple career trajectories you've had, how do you make sense of it? What is the story you tell yourself? Well, everything starts for me, I think, in the student movement of 1968, which is a vast uh, movement in Mexico, uh, as in many other parts of the world. Uh, and Mexico started in July 1968, and it ended having a million persons in movements and demonstrations and so on. And it had a sort of a, a coordinating body uh, that was called the National Council on Strike. And it was formed by three persons from each of the schools that were on strike. And there were about 90 schools on strike. So we you had a, a body of 2,070 persons, more or less meeting every day. It was a hell of a story. So uh, that's how I started. I was leader uh, for the economics uh, school uh, in the, the National University, and that's how I went to that. The student movement ended uh, terrible in Mexico. Uh, it was- uh, And you were a student at that point, Gustavo? Sorry. I was a student and I was the leader, one of the okay. leaders of the movement. Of the student leaders. Of the student leaders. And so, uh, on October, there was a demonstration in a sort of semi-closed uh, uh, place, no, uh, with many buildings around it, and the army 
shot people there, and there were more than 300 people dead and so on. I arrived late, and thanks to my late arrival, I was not killed or captured. And in the next weeks, I had to sort of move from here and there until my father, who was a very strong friend of the uh, people in the uh, technical and scientific uh, community uh, linked to the French embassy, uh, spoke with them about me, and they took me out of uh, Mexico in a sort of uh, auxilium type of asylum type of thing, no? So I ended up uh, at the end of '68. I had 21 years at that time. I ended up in France, and I was there, and I did my PhD there, and I did my studies. But the most important thing was not that, but the persons I knew, and that marked a lot of what I followed. On the one hand, there was all the uh, Marxist Maoists. Uh, my director of studies uh, was a very well-known economist, Marxist uh, economist called Charles Vetelem. And then there was all the school of structuralism uh, with Luis Althusser, Etienne Balibar, Nikos Pulanzas, all of them gave me classes. That was one group of persons. In that group of persons, I met two persons who were definitive in my formation on one side, on one term, Jean-Paul Sartre, which uh, is the French philosopher. At that time, he was an uh, activist. He was doing activism uh, for the Maoists, a group called the cause, the cause of the People, La Cause du Peuple. And I was wor I worked with him. I was doing activism with him in the factories and the working uh, cl cl work class uh, things and so on. And the other one, since I loved so much uh, and I still love movies, was uh, Jean-Luc Godard, who also was there linking very much uh, with the Maoist movement. So that, that was one group. Second group is a group of uh, guys who at the end of the 40s, 1948, uh, uh, created an, uh, a magazine that was called Socialism or uh, Barbarism, Socialismo or Barbarism. And those two guys, which I met very strong, one was uh, Castoriadis, which is one of the great philosophers uh, who died just uh, recently. And uh, another guy who I, I try to remember right now, but I'll remember. They had a different vision on the future. They were very critical of the Soviet Union. They were very critical of Maoism as well. And they very much thought that the people should organize by themselves, were very much against state interventions. And they really impressed me very much. The other guy was, it's called uh, Claude Leport, and he has an incredible amount of texts on democracy as well. And the third group was a practical type of group. So it was a student from uh, Poland that were expelled from Poland by the communists. Uh, because they participated in a student movement against the communist regime. And in France, which I, where I met them, they were translating all the uh, clandestine underground press in the Soviet Union against the communists. And they were translated all that in France. So that's how I knew about the Gulag in 1970. That's why I knew about all the terrible things that the uh, communists were doing in in the Soviet Union countries. And, and then I met also some Spaniards 
from the exile and they were fighting within Spain against the dictatorship of, of Francisco Franco. And they ended up being leaders of the uh, uh, Socialist Party. Uh, and one of them ended up being prime minister in Spain. So <laughs> I met them when they were uh, very leftist, uh, very linked to Luxembourg. And that's Rosa Luxembourg. And that was more my type of influence rather than uh, Trotskyism. I, I I didn't like very much Trotskyism. Certainly, I didn't like the Soviet Union, uh, Marxism, and and I began to take my distances also to Maoism. But uh, the thing that really moved me more is that I was really uh, enraged, enraged because I had been uh, suspect. My youth was was suspended by the repression of the government, the Mexican government. Yeah, yeah. So I wanted I wanted to do something. So when I went back to Mexico, 1973, I began to work with peasant organizations in communities. You have your PhD at this point? Yeah, at that point I have my PhD. I went back uh, and I had to make a choice. Uh, was I going to follow academia or was I going to do something else? And I said I was going to do something else, activism. And so for the next 15 years, I worked with peasants and communities here and there and so on. Okay, then things that happen everywhere. The elites are the elites anywhere in the world. So they study together, they go to the clubs together. And so even if you're from left or from right or from left. So um, I had studied in the National University with a guy who ended up being president of Mexico in 1988, Carlos Salinas. And when he was going to be president, he called me and invited me to participate with him. At that time, I had written a lot. Uh, and basically, what I was saying is that the Ejido, and we will speak a little bit more about the Ejido, uh, had a part of it which was state domination of, over the, the peasants. So what you need to do first, what you needed to do first, is a political reform so that the peasants would not be dependent on the state, so that they could take their own decisions in terms of production, in terms of life, daily life, and so on. And that was what I wanted to do. Now, Salinas came from a very neoliberal background, and they didn't want the state either, but for different reasons, uh, as uh, as we did in, in the peasant movement. And there was a coincidence with that. And so when he invited to, for me to participate, I discussed that with my uh, colleagues in the, in the peasant movement, and they considered I should accept because that would be the possibility of making profound changes in, in, in the Mexican system. So I was there six years, first in, uh, in the Ministry of Agriculture as Vice Minister, then in the Ministry of Agrarian Reform also as vice minister, we did things. I, I finally realized being in the in the public policy, what you can do and what you cannot do, and what you can do is a little, very little things, because there's a lot of uh, coalitions against you and this and this and there. I thought I could do a very straightforward, radical change in relation to the Hedo uh, system, and we did it, a radical change, but not not completely on what we wanted because 
There were different coalitions that were competing and were against what we wanted to do and so on. Uh, then after that, I went out and then I, I was uh, invited to participate in FAO, which I did during 11 years, first in, in Rome as Rural Development uh, Director. And I had the opportunity. I wanted to see the experiences of reforms in state-led systems. So I, was, I saw what was happening in Poland. Uh, we're speaking 1995. Uh, 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 what happened in Poland, what happened in Hungary, what happened in Ukraine, but most of all, what happened in China. And I went uh, six, seven times to China to see the reforms that the Chinese were doing on their uh, 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 their, uh, rural side, on the countryside. It was very interesting uh, to try to compare what we have done uh, in Mexico. So I was 11 years there. Uh, Then I went back to Mexico, uh, came back to Mexico and participated as coordinator of a presidential political campaign of a very small party was called the Social Democratic Party. And the reason why I participated there was basically their agenda. In 2006, in Mexico, it was strange, very strange that there was a a political group that was saying same-sex marriage, that was saying legalization of drugs, that was saying all the rights for the women to decide when to abort and how to abort, how to use their body. And all those three things for me were uh, a very important part of anyone who considers itself as a progressive. And so that's why why I participated in that campaign. It was a six month campaign and uh, we got uh, registration as a small party but I wasn't really interested in following the electoral uh, aspects. So, and I had a, a much more important invitation, which was to go with Eleanor Ostrom at Bloomington. And so in 2006, I went there, we met there, and I was there from 26 to 28. So that's the process that takes me to all the different discussions on the Ahido. And uh, in a sense, uh, when I started studying both in, in the National University and then in Paris, I wasn't thinking of the countryside. I was thinking of development. And I was thinking much more of the working class as a, as a leftist rather than peasants. Uh, but when I worked for 15 years with peasants and, and organizations, I realized that there was a world of such a different world of things we had to learn. Uh, we could come from uh, the urban side. And I think uh, those 15 years uh, helped me understand better uh, the world of the peasants in general, certainly in Mexico, but I think in general. Then afterwards, I, I did a lot of work in Latin America with uh, peasant organizations and in the countryside and with ministries of agriculture and so on. But uh, I think uh, direct experience is completely crucial mm. in this type of works. What do you think you learned, Gustavo, from working with rural peasants that you didn't know before? Oh, the most important thing, to be calm, timing. Because they were, they were 
radicals in many aspects. They did a lot of demonstrations, but everything they did had a purpose. So when they told me, yeah, we're going to do demonstrations because we want to negotiate this and this and this and that. And for me, it was strange. My experience as student was, let's do demonstrations for the sake of uh, being happy and doing interesting things. Not necessarily because we want to obtain something, especially something from the government. And that was a, a very crucial lesson for me from peasants. They take their time. They are not uh, people who don't understand the changes of the world in which they are inserted, but they have a timing that's different from many of, the, of us who live in, in big cities. No? Gustavo, before we talk more about the healers, I'd love to ask you a follow-up question about your decision to pursue a political and activist track when you had, because this is, I think, a question that lots of folks who get a PhD or maybe other degrees have is, what is the next path? Because you've mentioned I want to pick up on it before getting into a lot of other things. What do you think it was about your situation, but also maybe about you that led you down that path? Because this is something that you, you've, you had made some similar decisions earlier earlier in your life, right? To get politically involved, et cetera. What do you think, why do you think you have with some consistency chosen a more activist and political path? Well, I think, I, I mean, I have a lot of friends, you among amongst them, who have decided to take the path of academia and which I find it uh, uh, interesting and good for many people. But in my case, in that moment specifically, I was really enraged. Mm -hmm. I really was angry. And I really want to make, make differences. And at that time, I didn't think that I would do much if I continue as professor in the university. I thought I could do more as an activist. Seeing it in uh, hindsight and retrospective, I think I did a, a, a good decision for me. Now, it's not necessarily a good decision for others. It, it depends also on what you want to do, not necessarily what you want to do in the very future, future, future. It's a decision, you take decisions that there are breaking points you have in your life. And we all have breaking points. And those breaking points are in the precise conjuncture in which you are, not necessarily I don't think people think on 10, 20 years, but more more as a narrative rather as something that is really taken so seriously, no? Especially if mm -hmm. you are 25 or 25, 60 years old, which I was uh, when I went, when I came back to Mexico at 25, so I wasn't thinking of what would happen to me when I am 50. I was thinking what is going to happen to me in the next years. And at that point, I was clear that I wanted to work uh, in activism rather than do my uh, academy, academia uh, career. So, Gustavo, can we turn the conversation now squarely to uh, the institution of the Mexican Ejido, which is a very famous example of community-based natural resource management and common property. But can you give us a bit of the history for listeners who haven't heard much about this before? 
how did this institution start? How does it relate to the history of the Mexican state? Well, you know, ejido is a term that was used uh, uh, during the conquest of, uh, of Mexico by the Spanish in 19, in the 16th century. Uh, but uh, in that period, it was considered basically as lands that were given to communities to do communal work in, uh, in addition to the private property or whatever they had uh, uh, in addition to that, no? So uh, it was an institution that came from Spain that was used in the 16th, 17th, 18th century, then independence of Mexico, during the independence of Mexico. Uh, you had that, but you had also, and the uh, Spanish crown was very uh, careful in that, to recognize the rights of indigenous populations over the, their land. And so they created a system that would protect uh, indig uh, indigenous populations. Some, obviously, there was a lot of uh, uh, stealing land and, and taking out uh, indigenous populations and so on. But uh, the resistance was very strong of indigenous communities. You have rebellions all over uh, Mexico of indigenous communities in the 17, 18, and 19 centuries. And so when you had uh, the first stable government in Mexico, which was a dictatorship during 30 years, uh, at the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, you had a strong indigenous population in the countryside, which had preserved their rights, their way of working and uh, doing that. But as we know now very well, there so many studies on that, uh, indigenous communities adapt. They are not following exactly what they had three centuries before. They adapt, they recognize the changes, and within that, they uh, continue to have many of the systems they have uh, inherited but they adapt and that's for me the most interesting thing. So when you arrived on the 20th century in Mexico, you had about 95% of the land in, in the hands of a very small number of persons which had big latifundiums and so on. And you had an incredible uh, strong resistance of many groups around Mexico indigenous and non-indigenous, many people who were born in Mexico of uh, Spanish or Indian descendant who were unhappy about not having democracy in Mexico. So in 2000, uh, uh, in 1910, uh, the revolution exploded, a big revolution that uh, lasted for 10, 12 years, depending on which is the limit you say, that more than one million persons were killed, and that was a very bloody thing that happened. As a result, one of the results of that was the Mexican Constitution in 1917, which considered three types of land in Mexico. The private land, as we all know, private land, etc. The uh, indigenous communities, which would be recognized if they could show any papers before the 19th century that would recognize their land 
and the possibility of land. And finally, they created this system that was called the Ajito, but it was completely different. The Ajito of the Mexican Revolution has nothing to do with the Ajito we knew during the Spanish period or during, during the independence. What's the difference that made the Ajito uh, and was really consolidated in 1930 by uh, the then president, Lázaro Cárdenas? What was the Ajito then? It was considered a system that had three forms of land. You have the parcel, which was uh, basically uh, given as a uh, usufructus. Uh, you had uh, uh, the communal land, which was basically a type of condominium. All persons of the ejido were owners of that communal land, which were uh, trees and forests and water and so on, uh, depending on the region. And they had to decide collectively how to use that, that land. And the third element is where you had your house. And that was your house and a, a, a space where you could have chickens and pigs and, and whatever. And that was private always, private, private. You could sell it and that was the only part of the ejido you could sell, you could rent or whatever. The other parts of the ejido were never, were prohibited to sell or to rent or to do anything that did not have to do with inheritance, which the inheritance would go to the wife or the person or your uh, person with which you live with. Um, uh, and that's how it, you couldn't, uh, you couldn't ha have working force. All the force that worked in the ejido had to be members of the ejido. And you had many of those restrictions. And uh, as time went by, well, obviously what you had finally is a, a, a black market where all the things that were prohibited in law were permitted in the uh, black market. So you, you couldn't rent, but you rented. You couldn't sell, but you sold. You couldn't leave more than two years from the Ejido. Uh, if you did, you would lose the land. And many people really went on migration. And so what did they do? They agreed with the authorities of the Ejido and they uh, simply skipped the law. So that's the system you had uh, uh, until the reforms of 1992, uh, the first reforms of the Ejido system. And the reform was basically saying two things. In the movement, in the, in the peasant movement in which I participated for 15 years, I realized that the Ejido had two aspects. One aspect was the Ejido as a state control apparatus that were used basically to decide what to produce, where to produce, based on national strategies of the state and which used the peasants to go and vote for the one system party we had since then. We had a one system party in Mexico until 1997, 1997. Before that, we had a one party system. And so the peasants went to vote for the one party system. But that, that was what the state apparatus was about. But on the other hand, the election of the authorities in the Hido 
was done by the Hidatarius themselves. And so you had also a system of peasant representation, which was repressed by the state present, but was there, did not disappear, it was there. So what we were doing in this 15 years is how to make that part of the Ejido, the dominant part of the Ejido, and how to reduce the uh, state intervention within the Ejido. And that's when we decided that what we had to do is a constitutional reform, which for us was a political reform. So, Gustavo, when you say we, now you're talking about your time working for the agrarian ministry and the Mexican government? No, when, I, when I'm speaking of we, I'm thinking of all the activists and groups that participated in the, in the peasant movement. We created a, a loose uh, set of organizations, which uh, okay. implied more than 700,000 peasants. And those are the we I'm, I'm speaking okay. about. And we made uh, uh, different articles. I, I wrote 10 years before the, the, the reform of 1992, 10 years before. I wrote a very long article in a, in a magazine in which I called for reforms of the Constitution, basically because we wanted to make a political reform, which would take out the state intervention in the Hidu. So, Gustavo, what are... I don't want to talk too much about the state as if it's just one thing. What are actors within the state getting out of this relationship with the Ahilos? You're talking about the suppression of rural peasants. Like, What are the incentives of governmental actors to try to benefit from the state relationship with the Ahilo? Well, the most important was that uh, uh, it, it was very important for Mexico to have foodstuffs. And basically because uh, you, you were starting the industrialization of Mexico. And so you had to find a, a, a way of reducing the wages of uh, workers uh, without creating a, sort of a rebellion. And the way what that was done is basically uh, all the Hido was oriented to produce foodstuffs, which would go to the urban areas which would create a reduction in the wages because of the cost of food based on the ajito. Why the ajito uh, food was uh, cheaper than the uh, food in a private sector? Because it, it was not led by uh, gains, by direct gains. It was led basically by uh, ideas of how to share community at, uh, activities. So in a way, they could accept a lower price for the foodstuff as long as they had other incentives. For example, the government would give them uh, roads or they would create water infrastructure or they would help them with fertilizers or so on. So in a way, the government was subsidizing so that the foodstuff would be uh, cheaper and that would impact the wages of the urban workers. So that was that was the most important thing that uh, the uh, state uh, uh, agencies won. The possibility of uh, defining a food policy based on uh, self-sufficiency or almost self-sufficiency 
in the food. So this reminds me of another conversation is had about the ejidos and about common property is, is that it's often criticized for being less productive than private property. That has been a criticism of the ejidos as well, right? Basically, you see, the private property in Mexico is very, uh, also very tricky because uh, about 80 or 90 percent of the private property, uh, I mean, just to, to speak about uh, big, large numbers, so you can have an, the people who are hearing this have a, an idea. Yep. Uh, the agrarian reform uh, granted. Of what year? I'm sorry, Gustavo, to interrupt, but what year? What year? Uh, from 1970 yep. 70, to 1997, yep. eight years, the agrarian reform was constituted for uh, by 100 million hectares. Okay. Half of the territory of Mexico. And around 70 million hectares are private property. Of those 70 million that are private property, 90% have less than 10 hectares. So they're really small. Uh, and actually, the difference between small private property and ejidos is very, is, is almost uh, negligible because mm -hmm. the dynamic with which they work and they do is very similar. Uh, mm -hmm. Many, many of the uh, uh, indigenous communities decided to take the path of private property because they had a lot of suspicion and mistrust to the government. And they saw the ejido basically as a state apparatus. And so they decided to take the private properties. So you have an incredible amount of indigenous communities which their land is private. Uh, not, uh, and you have also many other uh, indigenous communities who have the system called comunidades, which is a legal system as well. So that's what makes the things uh, co complicated. And you have 10, probably 10% of the private uh, sector, which is, let's say, commercial agriculture, basically irrigated and basically for exportation. And they're very good. And the exportation, the agriculture exports in Mexico is now very, very strong in fruits and in vegetables and so on. So, so it's a, okay. Yeah. It's a complicated space. Yeah. Can you say a little bit more about the similarities and differences between ejidos and comunidades? Because it seems like in some ways there's, they're, they're similar. And you yeah. mentioned that comunidades, if we're talking about una comunidad in Mexico, we're talking about indigenous people, but aren't there also some indigenous people within ejidos as well? Or how does that kind of play out? Yeah, that's completely correct. There are indigenous communities that decided to take the ejido path. Okay. As they were indigenous communities, they decided to take the private sector. The indigenous communities had to make a decision which was based on, do you have the papers from colonial times that demonstrate that you were owner of that land? Which maybe you don't, because why would you necessarily, like you wouldn't necessarily be prepared for that requirement. No, people had it because they had ancestors. They were their community. I, I know people in communities near Mexico City who had those papers from nineteen from the nineteen sixty from the nineteen seventies, and they had the papers. No, but most of the communities 
had difficulty of how, how to demonstrate. So that's when they decided either to go through the Ahido system or through the private sector. So then okay. you do have uh, indigenous communities within the Ahidos. About 30% of the Ahidos, of the Ahido population, are indigenous. Okay. So the Ahido is really a formal institution. It's a formal institution and it has, uh, it's very different. Uh, we speak about the Ahido. In fact, we should speak about the Ahidos because mm. not only the, uh, you have the same legal structure, but you are in very different socio-ecological systems. Mm -hmm. That changes radical. There, Ahidos do not have common property. They, they didn't have at all common property from the beginning. And uh, many, and there are Ahidos who only have common property. For example, the forest uh, Ahidos are almost totally communal. They don't have uh, private parcels. And so you have such a different type of Ahidos that is really uh, very, so, so the only way you can, uh, look at the Ahidos in their specificity is by way of doing case studies, actually. Uh, obviously, surveys are help and help if they're very well focused on the Ahido system. We had a, a survey on the Ahidos until uh, I think the last one was 2007. So, uh, but we have a very strong agrarian register Register that has much of the land that was finally uh, given in property by the Ahido. Okay. Um, so the, the, only, the other thing I wanted to say is that the reforms of 1992 uh, permitted that the Ahido, in the Ahido, you could sell the parcel, you could sell it to another Ejidatario without any. Uh, process or any or any permission by anyone, and you could sell the parcel to another ejidatario uh, to a limit in terms of uh, how much parcels you could, how many hectares you could have. But if you wanted to sell the parcel for someone outside of the ejido, then you had to have an assembly, and the assembly had to be in agreement by two thirds to do the selling outside. So now the the the, the results we have. After, after 30 years of reform, of the 1992 reform, is that from 1 million, well, 100 million hectares, around 10 million hectares have been sold in commune, in, uh, in uh, tourist lands, beaches and so on, in suburban lands. Uh, our argument when the reforms were made and when the neoliberals were saying that it was good that all the land be sold and that the peasant didn't know how to work and so on. We told them the peasants are not going to sell their land. Their land has a value that's more than the economic value. And most of the peasants are, are not going to sell. They're going to sell in places where it's obvious that they will get much, much, much more, like in tourist uh, sites or in suburban sites. So that's the 10 million hectares that were sold. That that's the that that we have right now. Okay. So, based on your experience with the 
agrarian reform process that my understanding, Gustavo, culminated in was like 1992 or around there. Do you feel kind of a mix of positive and negative about it? Were there some victories and some losses? How do you feel like it kind of shook out in terms of your evaluation of how it went? Well, there's always uh, victories and losses. I mean, you're discussing with other guys. Other guys have another idea. The neoliberals wanted to sell all the land if they could. Uh, we thought we wanted a, a political reform. We wanted the ajitos to decide by their own. That's what we wanted. You know? uh, and between those two processes, there were a lot of other actors who wanted different things. Some were in agreement to uh, take the state out of the ajitos. Others thought that not, that would be a mistake uh, for the government. They should have control on the peasants. And so with all that discussion that, that went in the government and then in the uh, uh, House representatives and in the Senate and all that, all that discussion came to a situation in which we won something and we lost something. For example, one thing we lost is that uh, we thought that the communal land should not be considered as part of a, a, a private enterprise. And the neoliberals thought that the Yehido, the communal land of Yehido should go as parts of a, con, uh, of a process in which they would be mixed with private investors. And there are examples of that, right? Like I read a case study recently about a, a Yehido that worked with a private company to um, help it manage its, its common forest land and market it, et cetera. Yeah. There, there have been good experiences and bad experiences, but the most important thing is there's been very small uh, possibility of that. Uh, and the reason is because it's so different, the communal lands, and uh, uh, there are a lot of people who don't want to, uh, there are a lot of people who are in control of the communal lands uh, against the majority of the peasants, who are also peasants. So you have uh, caciques who were who are strongmen who are in control of uh, some uh, community land, and mm. they don't want to to participate with private uh, companies, and so on. There are different cases, no? There are some cases that have been functioning well. Uh, basically, when there's an association very well uh, organized between peasants who organize themselves uh, with uh, private uh, companies, in especially in the uh, forestry uh, side, no, there's been uh, uh, work between companies that sell uh, fruits and vegetables in the United States and ajitos who grow uh, fruits and vegetables as well. But that's the minority. That's the minority, I think. Okay. The most important thing is the three changes that has happened in the Ejido in general, the Ejidos, uh, in the last 30 years. Because, I mean, we're speaking about a reform that took place 30 years ago. So, uh, I mean, changes do come. And uh, there are three major changes, I'd say. The first of all is the age. The, the Ejidatario uh, average age is around 59 years. 
the uh, average age in Mexico is about 29 years. So you have an incredible young population in, in general, and in some parts you have a very aging population, and that's in the Ejida, in the Ejidos. So that's the first change. The second change is the agrarian reform did not consider women as owners of land. And the only way they could be owners is by inheriting the land. Uh, although we did not make a specific issue of, uh, <clears throat> gen uh, of uh, gender equality, which was a, a big mistake uh, on our part, what has happened since then is that around 30% of the Ejidatarios now, 20% of the Ejidatarios now are women. So that's been uh, increasing a bit. Second change is that um, the ejidos, the ejidatarios, uh, as part of a family, of a peasant family, uh, obtained their income basically from non-farm activities, non-agriculture activities. So uh, in many cases, they have the, the two main sources are salaries, wages, wage, non-farm wages, and they work in the cities and they go back to their lands and so on, or subsidies, transfers from the government, which has been very important. Uh, all the forms of non-conditional uh, transfers of money. And that creates a part, a very important part of the income of peasant organizations. And of course, uh, transfers of money from the United States to Mexico. And that's a, a huge amount of money. So if you have a family, an uh, average family of peasants, you would have basically around 25 to 30% of them income comes from their own land. Then you have about 30 or 40% of income that comes from wages, non-farm and farm wages, working with other farmers. And 30% that comes from subsidies of the government transfers or uh, remittances. So that's the second change. And it's very important because if you want to make policy, public policy, you have to consider that the ejidos are not only agriculture, they're much more than agriculture. So then your policies have to check on that very strongly. And the third, the third aspect is, is crucial is that the number of persons living in the residential part of the ejidos who are not ejidatarios is bigger than the number of persons living there who are ejidatarios. So we have a lot of persons have gone to the ejido to do other type of works who are not ejidatarios and are not considered in the assemblies. When mm -hmm. we did the 92 reform, we were seeing this process beginning to uh, be a trend. And so we decided to propose in the constitutional reform, which happened, what we call committees of neighbors, so that the people who were not ejidatarios could participate and could decide on aspects related to everyone. But that committee was never, were never implemented, so you don't have, but you do have the situation where many, many persons who live in the Ejido are not ejidatarios. So the three changes, age, gender, uh, income, and uh, neighbors, all those changes uh, obviously take you to the uh, conclusion 
that you need to make another reform on the Hidu. And when will that happen? Well, I don't know, but it has to happen. What would you want the reform to to do? Further empower women within the Hilos, integrate newcomers into Hilo governance, that kind of thing? I would. Uh, I I think that the combination of uh, parcels with communal land and with uh, people living there, I think that combination should be maintained in certain way. Probably we had to discuss more on the communal lands because communal lands uh, you have about 80% of the forestry in Mexico is uh, ejido, more than that, 85%, something like that. Most of the water uh, systems, uh, natural water systems are in ejido lands. Uh, so the richness of natural resources in the, commu in the community lands are very important. And there is a trend obviously who wants to privatize all that. And there's another trend of many others, and I'm on that on that side, that would want to consolidate the communitarian side of the communities. Okay. Gustavo, can we turn to your international experience? You mentioned that you worked for the FAO for a while in Rome. So I have, I have two questions there. One, well, the first question I'd like to ask is, based on your experiences working in FAO and and engaging in uh, community development in other countries, how do does the Mexican case to you seem quite unique or are there things that it has in common with other places that you've worked and experienced? No, there, there's very a lot of common traits, but uh, you have to understand them. Obviously the names uh, differ that you won't find ejidos, but uh, not only in Africa, which the richness of tenant uh, of uh, tenures in Africa continent is incredible, really incredible. Yeah. I mean, people who are working on land tenure need to see much specifically aspects of different countries in Africa because they certainly have an incredible amount of experiences. I, unfortunately, the only country I did really worked a little bit and just a little bit was South Africa. Because when I arrived to FAO, it was the first year that South Africa, led by Nelson Mandela, was admitted in the United Nations system. And so uh, Mandela asked the, the, the uh, director of FAO if they could send someone with experience on agrarian reform processes. And so they sent me. And it was my first uh, international experience in FAO. And it was incredible. I was there for about three years. Well, I mean, going and coming back from Rome and so on, about three years. I learned quite a bit and uh, I found it uh, about an incredible complexity. I thought no, no, nothing was going to be more complex than Mexico, frankly speaking. Uh, there's a lot of complexity in many other countries and certainly in South Africa was one of the cases. Uh, China, well, what can you say about China? I was uh, really, I was, I found it so intelligent, so well done, the process of reforms in China uh, when they began to participate in, in market-led uh, systems. So well thought about. It was not the radical, uh, stupid, neoliberal 
reforms that they made in Eastern uh, Europe. It was something done with timing, with participation, that's incredible, but it's true, with participation at the community level, very strong participation at, at the community level. And then I remember that working with uh, Lin, she was working with a, a group of scholars uh, in China who were saying and were working precisely on those things. So, so that's what I discussed very much uh, with Lynn Ostrom, that uh, the, ex the experience of agrarian reform in China in a period probably of the first 10, 15 years uh, after they decided to go on a much more market-based uh, uh, system was uh, interesting, very, very interesting. And there's many books that are now uh, relating to the uh, uh, reforms in the, in the agrarian sector, which was really very important. Mm. Well, now that you've brought her up, can you talk to me a little bit more also about your experience working with Lynn Ostrom and what brought you to the Ostrom workshop at Indiana University? You said 2006, and as you mentioned, that's how we met because I was a PhD student uh, there at that time. What brought you there and, and what was your experience like? Yeah, well, I met Lynn in a very, very particular uh, way. I, I, I was in 1995, my first year in FAO in Rome, and uh, FAO has uh, long, long corridors with a lot of offices everywhere. And there was a little uh, place where people sat. And I went uh, passing there and I saw a very elegant woman, which was uh, wearing clothes from uh, the south of Mexico, from Oaxaca. And that catched my attention. But I was in a hurry, so I went to a meeting and then went back and she was there still. So I decided to make her company. And we began to speak and then she began to ask me a lot. And I told her my experience with peasants and so on and blah, blah, blah. And she told me, oh, that's good. And she made very interesting questions. At some point I told her, look, you should read a book that's really incredible, uh, done by Eleanor Ostrom. And she saw me and said, I am Eleanor Ostrom. I said, my God, my God, how is it possible that Eleanor Ostrom has been more than an hour sitting here in a corridor and not speaking with a, an incredible amount of people who would be really uh, getting a lot from your experiences. Well, because the people from the forest, we are now having a meeting and they asked me to wait here. I said, well, that's typical thing in FAO. So I invited her to have dinner. And from there on, I was a very good friend of uh, hers and of Vincent. And she asked me to promise her that when I uh, would retire from FAO, I would go to work with her uh, at Bloomington, which I did. And I mean, the things I learned from her in that long period, 1995 to 2009, 2010, is uh, really incredible. Her books and her discussions and her weekly things that you obviously benefited a lot from that uh, uh, as well, Mike. And, uh, and then I had the privilege of being a student, one of the last students of Vincent Ostrom. 
because I was uh, very interesting on the um, idea of polycentric governance. And I quite didn't understand it well. I had read texts from Lynn and from him, but I wanted to have a much uh, profound knowledge of polycentric governance. So during one year, I had a Tuesday meeting with him of one hour. I would send him a memo every Friday in which I would tell him the ideas I was, I was thinking of, the things I was reading around polycentrism. And, um, and so we had one year discussion on that. And that was something really, I, I wouldn't change for anything. I mean, really marvelous. And what does polycentrism mean to you, Gustavo? Well, basically, it's a different way of organizing. Uh, in a way, it's, a, you know, the main discussion that has been very much in the background uh, discussions with the, the work of Lynn is that she does not consider the problem of power, no? Or she considers power in a very sort of uh, marginal way. Well. For my that was the discussion with uh, with Vincent. I saw okay, polycentrism, different uh, areas of decision overlapped because you want to have different forms of controlling so that no one can have the whole decision of anything. That makes things difficult and uh, cumbersome. And he said, yes, but uh, do you want cumbersome or do you want dictatorship? And I said, no, I want cumbersome. And it's going to be very difficult and you get very obsessed by the time it takes to make decisions. But uh, polycentrism for me is best. And polycentrism was exactly what, what the real form of governance was uh, occurring within the Ejido. Obviously uh, deformed uh, by the state intervention, but nevertheless, that was what Peasants wanted. They wanted to have a system in which no one would have the last decision, so that decision could be done in community. Now that takes time, a lot of time. That's a force that that creates problems. Yes, and when you are at the national level, uh, you would want to have a House of Representatives who take decisions quickly, rather than to have the House of Representatives we have in our countries. But in a way, it's better that than that than having one person or one group of persons deciding for everyone. So, uh, which happens nevertheless. I mean, you, you don't need to have one person deciding. You have elites, who, oligarchies who make decisions, no? Uh, but as much as you can disperse power is better. Gustavo, can you talk to me about what you have been up to recently and what's still getting you excited intellectually and politically? Yeah. Well, on the one hand, I I finally I finalized the book on the reforms of 1992 very recently because I I think I mean you are uh, one of the principal actors of that reform. So you don't want to make, end up doing a, a biography. Uh, you don't want to make a, something that uh, speaks of the good things you did. 
and not of the bad things you did, did or didn't do. Uh, so you have to have time so you can have more results, more uh, strong uh, uh, data that will tell you a little bit more of what you actually accomplished or not accomplished. So that was why it took so much time. When I was uh, with Lynn there in, in, in 2000, 2006, you certainly remember, I prepared many texts on, on the ajito and this and that, and we discussed a lot, you and I, on that. Well, it still took me 15 more years before I had finalized the book. And uh, now I have it, and I'm doing uh, all the, also consultancies on the countryside, this and that. But the thing that has me more, uh, more happy now is that I finally decided I had to take another route in my life. And I always been very much a movie lover and a literature lover. I read a lot of literature, novels and this, poems and see a lot of movies. So then I decided, well, what, uh, why don't you study seriously? And so I just finalized my master's in literature uh, one year ago, one year and a half ago. And now I'm doing my PhD on literature as well. And the PhD has to finalize with a novel. Uh, and I'm working on my second novel. My first, I just finalized, but I'm still very, very scared, scared of putting it in, in public because it would be my first novel. But I'm happy of reading literature, novels, seeing all that. The things I, I did in my spare time, I'm now doing at, as my main activity, actually. Is there a relationship between your creative work and your professional life? Well, yeah, because I think um, uh, working with uh, peasants takes you always to uh, fantastic parts of reality. That's why so many novelists in, in Latin America have been fantastic novels, know that, for example, Garcia Marquez, no? uh, mm. many others, they, they, they have a part of reality and a part of fantasy. They call it uh, fantastic reality, something like that. No? So yeah, that, that, that's the uh, link between one thing and the other. And obviously, there are, I realized that there are things you write in an academic type of book, like the one I did uh, recently on the reforms of 1992. And, and there are things that happen that you have lived that you cannot, trans, uh, you cannot uh, transmit them in an academic language. You have to transmit it more in literature, mm. more imagined things that are reality as well, but you are imagining them. No. Do you think the world of academia would benefit from more engagement with with non-academic literature? Oh, absolutely. I think nobody that has a PhD should should not have read at least the main 20 novels in their country. Mm. And I'm sure that doesn't happen. And that doesn't happen because uh, we are very uh, sort of closed 
in our areas of, uh, uh, of uh, professional development, but uh, someone who's working in things that, like you are working, or people who are working on commons and all that, absolutely, you need to read novels, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I don't think that happens, and I think it's because of what you say. That's the, the challenge of of professionalism is that it crowd it crowds out right because you're it's kind of it's socially empowering while it's analytically and maybe emotionally constraining because you're 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 creating a very strong box from which you can market yourself to the world but then it's kind of impoverishing in some of these other ways and I and, think sorry yes well you and I have talked a bit about my own book project and one of the motivations I've had for doing that was the kind of additional room for creative creativity and self-expression that I found in a book medium, even though I would call it an academic book, it's still been really uh, enlivening to me to have more room to develop my, my voice, which has been nice. Um, as opposed to, um, and maybe I think this says as much about me as it does about science or academia is, is, it's never felt like it was as much my strong suit or as natural to me to say, okay, I'm going to write my, the next article. It's going to be have an introduction and the methods and the results and the discussion kind of boom, 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 boom. Um, there was, there's always been something uh, intrinsically missing from that process for me. That's, and, and this is, you know, as you've mentioned, we've talked about these things before. And I think it's, it's because I also find um, a lot of these other areas fulfilling and I think, you know, in the commons field, we're also interested in this idea of interdisciplinarity, and we certainly talk about it a lot. But I think it's it's like a lot of important concepts. It's much easier to write about than it is to implement. You know, that there are two or three things people who are studying their PhD should do. One, I already said, they need to read novels. I know it's difficult because you're, you're very much constrained by doing in a certain time you're yeah you're stuck. worried about falling behind and there's yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. but you have to have make an effort an extra effort and read novels then secondly if you're going to work on the policy public policy uh, area you need to have experience in the policy in the public policy mm -hmm. i mean i've seen people who are supposedly experts on public policy who have never worked in government or in any other form of public policy. And I simply cannot not understand how they can be experts. Mm. So those two things are important. Uh, the second you can do as part of your curriculum, uh, but you need to do that. You need to work in, I mean, I don't, public policy, I don't mean only government. I mean, public policy can be working with communities, can be working with all NGOs, et cetera. But you need mm. to have public policy experience. Mm -hmm. So, Gustavo, I have to ask you as well, now that you're recommending that people read novels, are there specific novels that come to mind? Well, they, they, I, there's a not, there are authors that come to mind. Uh, yeah. American authors I will mention because, I, I mean, I have an incredible amount of other authors. But uh, I'm thinking of um, Philip Roth. He's an incredible, great novelist who just died. And uh, his novels are very much related to Jewish, Jewish people, 
but have an uh, incredible uh, res- uh, universal lessons, no? So that's mm-hmm. one. The other one is Jonathan Franzen, which I think is one one of the great, he's living in one of the great uh, uh, novelists, and I would take him into account. And then the uh, very recent, uh, now she's French, but the very recent uh, uh, novelist, which won the uh, the Nobel Prize, Anne Arnold, she's incredible. She has very short novels. Many are translated to, to English, so she would be... What's her awesome. name? Uh, Anne Arnold. Okay. You'll, you'll, the the novel price of the uh, of last year. Okay. Uh, you you get and there you get uh, a, a lot of texts uh, that are very interesting, very much on on her type of of feminism. It's really, really very good, very good, very good. So those are some of of course of Latin Americans. I would say Garcia Marquez is uh, one of the best. Julio Cortázar is the best for me. And uh, I would recommend, I don't know how you call it in English, but in Spanish it's called Rayuela. It's an incredible novel. And that would be, and and the oldies Americans, which I follow a lot and I think I've been very much influenced. The most, the the one that influenced me more has been William Faulkner and uh, John Steinbeck and, uh, uh, Hemingway, of course. Those are the three. Uh, John Dos Passos. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, I could follow. And uh, yeah, yeah. A whole other conversation. A whole other conversation. Yes. Okay. Well, amigo, I, I don't want to take up too much of your generously donated time. Are there other topics that you'd like to make sure that we discuss before wrapping up? Are there threads that we started to unravel that need to be re-raveled? No, I think it's basically uh, what I wanted to say. I think it's been very interesting. The, the questionnaire you sent me was very u- u- uh, useful so that I, I could orient uh, the things I wanted to say. And uh, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can find more episodes as well as entries in our blog on our website, incommonpodcast.org. The Incommon Podcast is the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC.